immortal yet paraphrased words of Albus Dumbledore. Hope can be found even in the darkest of times if one only remembers to turn on the light. Hi everyone, thank you for coming back and joining me here in episode 3 of Turn on the Light. I hope you're well. Uh, I'm Louise, um, if you don't know, I'm your host and I'll be chatting to you today um, about a certain species which I'll reveal later and then we've got a lovely interview from special guest. Um, as always, sort of at the beginning of these episodes, I like to just talk about a little couple of bits of good news that we've heard from, from the past couple of weeks since the last episode came out. Um, now the first bit of, of somewhat good news-ish, I suppose, um, is uh, unless you've been living under a rock, then you will have heard about coronavirus. Um, and how it's sort of growing, probably going to end up being a, a pandemic. Um, but the one good thing that has come out of this whole extravaganza um, is that China has actually just banned the trade and consumption of wild animals. Um, and as many of you will know, the illegal wildlife trade in China is huge um, and the use of them in, for medicinal purposes and in food is, is, is absolutely massive. So this is a huge, huge thing to have happened um, as experts think that the coronavirus jumped from live animals to people at a wildlife market in Wuhan. Um, so, yes, Chinese officials have issued an immediate and comprehensive ban on all wildlife trade and consumption. So, yay! Um, the reason I say sort of good news-ish is because hopefully that ban won't be lifted once this, um, once this whole outbreak has been brought under control and hopefully it won't lead to things such as the slaughter um, of wildlife where they think this, this um, virus came from. Um, so for the moment, yes, it's good news and I'm, I'm taking it as good news. Um, so I was sharing that little bit with you. Um, and then the second thing that I wanted to share, which is most definitely 100% really massive good news, um, especially for me um, and some listeners as well living in London, um, that the Heathrow third runway that was um, going to be built has been ruled illegal um, in courts over climate change. The appeal court says the decision to give a go ahead to the third runway would not be consistent with the Paris Agreement, which is huge. And it shows that we're actually putting climate change and the climate crisis above economic progress and above capitalist ideals. So for me, that has been a massive, amazing piece of good news this week. And I hope you all take as much joy in that um, as I do. And perhaps it means we're moving forward to a place where government officials are actually taking climate change a lot more seriously. So that's really cool. So now next, on to revealing who our species in the spotlight is this week. Um, if you follow the Instagram, you may have seen a little clue, a little dorsal fin poking up, waving hello out of the ocean at you. Um, so it is the humpback whale, um, more specifically the Western South Atlantic population of humpback whale. So let's talk about their story. Latin name Megaptera noviangli. Iconic, instantly recognisable. This giant of the ocean actually had its own near miss with extinction. Now a little bit about the humpback whale itself. 
They're a species of baleen whale, and these puppies are huge, ranging from 12 to 16 meters and weighing in at 25 to 30 metric tons. Of course, these dudes sport the distinctive body shape, and they have long pectoral fins and knobbly bobbly head, which is very sad. And the obvious hump on their back, which gives them their name, made all the more obvious when they dive, curving their backs sort of down into the water, curving up and then down. So they feed mainly in the summer in polar waters, in the colder waters, on krill and small schooling fish like juvenile Atlantic salmon, herring, um, mackerel, pollock, haddock, all sorts of fishies like that. And in the winter, they will live off their fat reserves in warmer waters. So they'll migrate to tropical and subtropical waters to breed and to give birth. Um, subtropical waters like the waters of Madagascar, where I was incredibly lucky enough to see these guys um, on their migration. Um, and I just spoke a little bit about their size, but even I was in a boat, you know, a good few feet away from these guys. And even seeing them that close was breathtaking. Um, they're huge. <laughs> I wasn't even in the water with them. It's it's it definitely sort of stops your heart a little bit. Um, but they're beautiful, beautiful creatures. So this the story in the beginning is is a bit sad, but obviously in the theme of this podcast, it comes good and it comes positive. So I'm glad to be telling it to all you guys. So they inhabit all major oceans, um, and they tend to be split into four sort of main global populations, like for ease of splitting them up and talking about them in different ways and, you know, studying studying each different population, their four sort of main parts. Um, and those populations are in the North Pacific, the Atlantic, the Southern Ocean and the Indian Ocean. Um, and as I touched on earlier, the population that we are focusing on today is the Western South Atlantic population. Now, these guys existed quite happily um, in tens of thousands of numbers. Their population was, you know, tens of thousands. Um, until intense pressure in the late 20th century from commercial hunting led their numbers to diminish very dramatically. Um, so, yes, the commercial hunting of whales is the main factor that drove down numbers so severely. Um, eventually it got down to as little as only 450 whales existing in this population. Um, and just to sort of put that into perspective as well, like the level of hunting that these humpback whales were, were going through. Um, in the 1900s, between 1904 and 1916, it was estimated that in that short space of time, that 12-year period, that 250,000 whales were caught in that small amount of time alone. So I worked out some, some numbers for you, um, and that works out at 2,083 whales a year, which is almost six whales caught by hunters every single day. Six whales every single day, which is quite astounding. So all of that activity, that massive pressure from hunting, led to the population to decline um, by 95%. Um, so, yeah, as I said, it's a, a very close brush with extinction. 95% of numbers um, gone. Um, so by the 1960s, it was noted by scientists um, that these declining numbers were very real um, and only continuing and a disgrace and needed to be rectified. Um, so a few bodies came into place to put protection measures 
up for these humpback whales and it sort of happened sort of happened in a staggered kind of way um so you had the international whaling commission um who who brought protections in place for the humpbacks the endangered species act and the marine mammal protection act so the endangered species act came into play in 1973 and the marine mammal protection act came into play in 1972 so the ESA, the Endangered Species Act, was designed to protect imperiled species from extinction. And the MMPA, the Marine Mammal Protection Act, it prohibits the, the taking of marine mammals from the marine environment and the selling, the importing, the exporting of their bits and bobs and their meat, etc. Um, in the mid-1980s, the International Whaling Commission issued a moratorium on all commercial whaling, offering further safeguards than the ones that were already in place. Um, to the struggling population. Um, moratorium just means the temporary prohibition of an activity. So commercial whaling was prohibited. Um, so all those sort of varying factors coming into play in the populations being um, protected meant that since 1972, there hasn't actually been any hunting of the species. So no hunting of humpback whales at all since 1972, which is the point where scientists really sort of started to see their recovery take off. Um, and saw numbers starting to come back. Um, so a very recent study, um, which was published in October 2019 um, in the Royal Society Open Science Journal, authors or co-authored by Grant Adams, John Best and Andre Punt, um, and I will put a link to that in the show notes so you can go and have a look at that paper. Um, yes, yeah, so a very recent October 2019, you know, barely six months ago, where, what month are we in? Almost six months ago. <laughs> um, yeah, so they did some surveys on the numbers of the Western South Atlantic humpback whales. Um, they used a combination of air-based surveys, ship-based surveys, along with advanced modelling techniques to get the best idea of the numbers of these guys that are now there. So, the numbers of Western South Atlantic humpback whales are now at almost... 27,000 from 450 to 27,000 that means that remarkably numbers are now at 93% of what their numbers were prior to exploitation by whalers so 93% of their original population numbers before we came in and fucked their shit up so that means that there's a very very high probability that numbers will be at a nearly recovered population size um which to be nearly recovered they need to sort of hit the 99 percent mark of pre-exploitation abundance um but once they they do hit that they'll be you know classed as a nearly recovered population and from this paper we know that this is highly likely to happen by 2030 so in 10 years time we will have a population of western south atlantic humpback whales that have reached 99% of pre-exploitation abundance there's no yeah I mean that's pretty successful right <laughs> we can't we can't argue for more than that we can't say better than that um so that yeah that is an incredible incredible story um and the success is even more than the researchers themselves could have hoped for um so one of the co-authors John Best he's been quoted as saying uh, we were surprised to learn that the population was recovering more quickly than previous studies had suggested. So I think there were studies in 2006 and 2013 
um, which saw that numbers were growing, but they were maybe at 3,000, something like that. Um, not even in the tens of thousands. Um, and then this, this sort of groundbreaking study was done in 2019 and everyone was like, wow, okay, yeah, this is, this is big bloody news. <laughs> um, and this study itself has been extremely well received, showing that endangered species can come back from the brink of near extinction and that wildlife populations can recover from exploitation if proper management is applied. Okay, now time for the ever popular segment of fun facts. So, fun fact number one about humpback whales. Each tail is unique, like a human fingerprint, and there does exist a massive database of each unique whale tail. Fun fact number two. Humpback whale calves are about the size of their mother's head, and weigh more than most large calves, coming in at a couple of tons. Fun fact number three. They're a playful species, and their breaching and surface behaviours make them very, very popular with whale watchers, which I can vouch for personally. Fun fact number four. Males produce complex songs of about 10 to 20 minutes that they repeat for hours at a time, and all males within a group will produce the same song. So they'll all copy each other's songs. So it's the same within them, but it's different each season. So they write a new album each season, basically. And we believe that it may have a role in inducing estrus in their mates. So, of course, I couldn't have a humpback whale episode without some wonderful whale song. And that is from YouTube, Songs of the Humpback Whale, full album, HD vinyl, by Dr. Dern. So that's a nice album there that you can listen to in its entirety if you so desire. And now, to introduce my special guest for the episode. So a big welcome to Molly Gray, who I met working at the animal welfare charity I currently am at. We bonded over a love of animals and the environment. She subsequently left Mayhew last year to return to Taji in Japan, where she had previously worked on Rico Barry's dolphin project. For anyone who has seen the documentary The Cove, you may know what this is all about. If not, Molly will fill us in. Hello. Hello. Hi. Hi. How are you? Good, thanks. How are you? I'm well. It's good to hear your voice. I know, and yours. <laughs> you sound very clear, which is good. <laughs> yeah, I was worried about this connection, but it's um, it's, it seems pretty good, actually. Yeah, I'm quite impressed. Oh, wow. Yeah. So, welcome, welcome to the podcast. Um, I've just done a little intro for you there, so people know um, we met working together um, at an animal welfare charity, um, and then yeah. you and go back to Taji in Japan where you'd previously worked um yep. and yeah I just sort of I'm waiting for you to be able to fill everyone in on that I mentioned the cove <laughs> um so if some okay, people cool. know what it's about um yep. but 
yes, you're currently actually, as I speak to you now, you're in the Philippines completing your dive master certification. That's right, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. So it's basically um, the first professional level of scuba diving. Um, yeah, like the, the certification is the first professional level. So mm. after this, I'll be able to actually work as a scuba diver, um, hopefully meaning I can do a bit more conservation work and uh, yeah, like kind of fund our travels as well at the same time. So yeah, that'd be good. And how's it going? How far into that process are you at the moment? So we're about halfway. Um, so I've got another couple of weeks left. Um, but yeah, we've done all like the written work and it's just getting the workshops and, and the more practical stuff done. So mm-hmm. but yeah, it's, it's tiring, but it's, it, yeah. it's good. It's good. It's, I'm, I'm absolutely loving it. Like the diving here is amazing. Yeah, they look incredible. Like what's, what's the yeah. favorite beauty that you've seen so far? Uh, definitely the, the thresher sharks. Yeah. This is like the only place in the world where Oh, I think you've dropped out. Oh. I you... <laughs> oh yeah, yeah, yeah. I think it just disconnected a second, yeah, but it's, yeah. it's come back. Um but yeah, no, you have to get up really early in the morning to go and see these thresher sharks because they are usually um living at about like two hundred to two hundred and fifty meters um oh. under the surface of the water. But obviously we can't go that deep as recreational divers. So mm-hmm. um, they come around 20 to 25 meters um, to a cleaning station where these fish like help um, clean their skin and like their teeth and everything. And so they do that at night because they have such. Oh, I've lost you again. <laughs> Hello. Okay, so we lost Molly for a bit there, but uh, she comes back and um, the rest of the interview is really, really good. So sorry about that little signal drop. Whoopsie. Hello. Hello. (laughs) (laughs) Sorry. That's all right. I think it can be a bit temperamental, this, um, yeah, Yeah. this Wi-Fi. It's authentic. It's uh, yeah, shows, shows sort of you know, you're in this remote place doing these really cool stuff. So I'll just, <laughs> okay. in editing, it'll be fine, I'll, I'll mash it together. <laughs> okay, perfect. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I'll just pick up from where, where I left off. Basically, yeah. these, these sharks have these, um, they have such big eyes that, um, they, they stay darker waters, and so. Um, we have to go see them literally really early in the morning. So I've got to get up tomorrow at like 5am and oh go to the dive shop and um, get on the boat and everything to go and see the sharks. Uh, but it's totally worth it. Oh yeah, definitely. Like Molly sent a video the other day um, of the thresher sharks and they are just beautiful, beautiful creatures. And it's mm-hmm. so nice to, to, I mean, are they thriving out there? Are they doing okay? Um, sort of what are, what's their populations level levels looking like yeah i mean they're they're doing really really well out here like this is one of the only places um in the world where you can like you're kind of guaranteed to see them it's like pretty much a 99 chance of of seeing the thresher sharks um here yeah which is amazing um but and yeah that like half of their body is their tail 
they're mm-hmm. yeah they're beautiful they're, they're so like graceful and like just amazing it's a different world under the water isn't it as well like oh yeah yeah I love it I wanted to ask you sort of what first sparked that interest in the natural world in general um but in particular marine life um and the under the sea world what was it that drew you into to that so when I was younger my parents um they actually had a place in Florida and like obviously Florida's got a very different climate to the UK and uh, there's such just such different wildlife there and when we were there we'd always like we'd we'd see lizards and alligators and uh, armadillos and like all these crazy animals and we literally would go on drives just to go and see these like animals that we'd never seen before mm-hmm. and one time um we decided to go on a boat trip and see the dolphins and I, so I was about eight years old at that point and I just fell in love with them like that was the absolute highlight I was so excited mm-hmm. and after that um because obviously being in Florida there's like there's SeaWorld and there's all these uh like amu- uh, amusement parks and there's obviously ones where you can go swimming with dolphins mm-hmm. and um like I'll, I'll go into it obviously like I, I don't agree with those uh facilities now but at the time my parents thought oh like we, Molly's like fallen in love with these dolphins like we can go and um get her closer to these dolphins she can see them um like in yeah like performing and, and even swim with them I went swimming with them for my 10th birthday and uh I, I absolutely loved it I thought it was the best experience ever like these dolphins look so happy and and look like they were having fun like being mm-hmm. trained and and looked after and everything and I, I thought that for years and years afterwards like it, it was like the highlight of my life like dolphins were my favorite animal full stop like but then I when I went to uni um I was told about the documentary Blackfish it literally mm-hmm. came out earlier that year and as soon as I heard it was about SeaWorld you know when you're in your first year of uni you've got loads of free time so I just yeah. sat down <laughs> I sat down with my laptop and I, I put on Blackfish so I was like what, what's this all about like people are saying SeaWorld is the worst place in the world like what like surely not it's the best place in the world I loved it and I watched this documentary and um like from start to finish I was just like sat there in silence couldn't believe uh the the kind of the the behind the scenes like the the truth behind how these uh, whales and dolphins had got to these marine parks and actually their how different their lives are to their the lives in the in the wild and the trauma and, that they go through being in in captivity yeah exactly and my my laptop screen at the end of the film like after I literally I watched all the credits like just couldn't believe it and then my screen went blank like just went black and I, I saw my reflection and I just had like my mouth was just like jaw drop like oh my god my whole childhood is a lie <laughs> and I watched the, I watched the whole thing a second time round straight away um and and just wanted to understand every single element of it and um after that yeah my my life completely turned upside down and I was determined to try and do everything I possibly could to reverse any any damage that I had done by swimming with dolphins myself and and supporting 
um, the captivity trade when when it's it's so harmful and uh, traumatic for them. That was like that was your eureka moment, if you like, the epiphany moment. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, and it just it just goes to show as well, like all these things and all of these issues that go on around the planet. A lot of a lot of getting people on side and getting people to support things is education, because a lot of the time people mm-hmm. don't know. Um, yeah. So you know, so like Rico Barry's Dolphin Project um, is such an yeah. Im- important thing to raise awareness of these issues. Um, and if mm-hmm. any of you haven't seen Blackfish or The Cove yet, uh, Blackfish is still on Netflix. I'm not sure about The Cove, um, but The Cove's on on YouTube. Mm-hmm. Like, I think you might have to pay for it, but um, it's it's only a couple of quid. Like, yeah, definitely definitely worth the watch. Definitely worth the watch. So Blackfish is like the captivity industry, and it goes into um, lots of scenes actually at SeaWorld, whereas the Cove is sort of the beginning of that process almost, isn't it? Sort of show mm-hmm. how these animals reach that point. Um, yeah, so I guess that leads me into my next question. <laughs> um, uh, mm-hmm. You working as a Cove monitor with the Dolphin Project. Um, you did that tw- in two separate occasions. Um, is that right? Um, three, actually. Three. Yeah, yeah. I've, I've been, yeah, I've been there three times. Okay, did you want um, to take that through how you got into it and, and what, what you did out there? Yeah, sure. So after I watched Blackfish, I then did so much research and like I was so I was studying at university at the time and I pretty much engineered, every, like I studied English, which mm. is not really related to <laughs> conservation or anything, but I managed to engineer like every single assignment that I did um, to talk about like, animals and, and yeah. specifically whales and dolphins and but I love um, that, I I love that aspect. like within this podcast as well I'm sort of trying to tell everyone that everyone can be a conservationist anyone can be an environmentalist so that's really cool yeah yeah <laughs> yeah, yeah so I, I ended up writing my dissertation about orcas in captivity um and I like did so much research obviously like so much work has to go into a dissertation and I came across this event in the states um, it's like a week-long conference. It's called Superpod, and it's basically all these whale and dolphin advocates who get together, um, and they that that's there's a resident pod of um, killer whales that that live there, and so they all go on these all these boat trips, and they have all these presentations and and yeah conferences um, to to kind of give more information. And I found it and I was just like I have, I have to go <laughs> my, my little my present to myself after finishing university was to go um yeah to, it was just off of Washington State it's on an island called San Juan Island and um yeah I, I I bought a ticket and I went and I just met this whole community of people who were exactly like me um and loved whales and dolphins and wanted to protect them um and were all part of these organizations and um, one of those organizations was Dolphin Project and so I got talking to these people and um, and at, by that point as well I'd seen the cove and and I didn't realize that there were still people who were volunteering and going out and I didn't realize it was still going on to be honest like mm-hmm. um, they yeah like I met so many people who had been and and done like uh, like a stint in Taiji to uh, document what happens there and so when I got back, I uh, was just like, I have to go. <laughs> and because I'd finished uni and I hadn't, um, like, didn't really know what was next for me, I was just like, okay, I'm going to Japan. So I booked 
booked a ticket and, and went and um, started volunteering for Dolphin Project. And that first trip was about two, two and a half weeks long. Mm-hmm. Um, but then I ended up going back out there the next season for two months. And then this season just gone, I, I spent two months there as well. Mm-hmm. So what's sort of, um, just for people who, who don't really know anything about uh, dolphin capture and dolphin slaughter that happens out there, um, Mm -hmm. Do you want to give us an idea of, without too much (laughs) graphic detail, um, about what goes on and and, um, what you were trying to stop from happening or not um, and raise awareness of what's happening out there? Um, What exactly are these activities people are doing? Uh, Okay, so in in Taiji, basically for six months of the year, every single year, um, starting on the 1st of September that goes all the way to the 1st of March so like right now it, it's happening um, hunters have a permit to hunt capture and slaughter dolphins um, they basically like and we, we'd have to get up really early in the morning we'd go straight to the harbour and we'd watch the hunters leave on their boats um, there's 12 of them all together they all leave in a big long line and they, they spread out across the horizon um, in search of a pod of dolphins. And if they're uh, successful and if they find dolphins, then they get into um, formation. So they basically just line up in a row and using poles, they, um, so they, yeah, they lower these, these huge poles that run alongside of the boats into the water and they use hammers um, to bang on the end of the poles and when they're all lined up in a line like that, uh, it basically creates a wall of sound. And because dolphins are so like acoustically sensitive and sound is their primary sense, it's, it's basically like sight is to us. Mm-hmm. Um, they become disorientated and they try and swim away from, from this sound and from the boats. But the boats are then able to kind of manipulate them and chase them into any direction that they want them to go in. Um, and they push them towards this one a specific lagoon just off the coast of Taiji and and which is known as the cove like from the documentary and they net the dolphins in and depending on the species um they either inspect them for for captive selection so they'll basically choose the the youngest and prettiest dolphins who will be easier to train and who will look prettier on on display in aquariums and marine parks um they they choose them, they put them into slings and they strap them to the sides of boats and they take them to sea pens and, and train them and then uh, eventually sell them on to other aquariums and marine parks. Or they, well, and sometimes and, sometimes once they've taken the, the prettiest ones, they'll then slaughter the rest of the pod. Um, but there are certain species where they only slaughter them and then their meat is then sold in supermarkets and local restaurants. Mm-hmm. Um, even though the consumption of dolphin meat has dramatically decreased in, in recent years, like it's really harmful to your health. Like it's very high in mercury poisoning and, um, PCBs and plastics, obviously, like, um, as we know from like all the yeah pollution that's in the ocean now, um, it's it's really like detrimental to human health so not many people actually eat it anymore it pretty much just gets frozen and then resold like a few weeks later Mm. 
but yeah it's, it's basically that it's the captivity industry that fuels the hunts they make up to 150,000 US dollars per trained captive dolphin wow so it's very very profitable if they didn't make that much money uh they definitely wouldn't be still hunting dolphins like it's completely driven by the captivity industry yeah so it's that capitalist thing again like poachers wouldn't necessarily poach animals unless they were getting a lot of money to do it Mm -hmm. yeah yeah it's completely driven by profit yeah and how do you feel I I really wanted to touch on how sort of that kind of activism that the the dolphin project um does like how is that perceived in Japan and where the perception and treatment of animals is not necessarily the same as in the western world hi sorry i didn't i didn't hear that question (laughs) (laughs) no problem um so i just wanted to ask about um the role that you feel activism plays in protecting species um like with the dolphin project um especially in a country like japan where they might not see or treat animals in exactly the same way as we would in the western world Mm -hmm. so it's it's a tough one because Japan, um, I mean, there, so there's been several documentaries that have come out since the Cove that have been in kind of rebuttal, like um, mm. there is their response and their answer to the Cove, like trying to justify why they still hunt dolphins. And they basically, like the, what the biggest message that I got from those documentaries is that they feel like it's an attack on their culture um from from like westerners and they they just see it as another thing like oh we're being oppressed by westerners yet again like especially um with like the history like from world war ii and everything like and it's something we have to be very mindful of i think yes definitely definitely but the point is it's not a japanese issue the captivity is a worldwide industry we need to expose how these dolphins get into these tanks and to these marine parks um and and it's it's very easy to go to taiji and, and see it and and document it and, and film it and like share it for people to mm-hmm. see so people then make the connection and then don't go to marine parks themselves because they are indirectly supporting the the capture and slaughter of hundreds of dolphins yeah um so the like it's 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 hard because the japanese feel like we're just attacking them and it's because they're japanese Mm -hmm. but that's not the case at all It's, it's all about supply and demand and what we're just trying to do is expose what happens um and how like traumatic and and how much these dolphins suffer um from being in in captive environments we want to expose that to the world there are still captive facilities in the us and europe like all over the world and people hopefully once they see the footage of how the dolphins ended up there they'll then make the decision not to support it um which means that the japanese people hopefully will like if if there's if we cut off the demand for for captive dolphins then then they'll eventually cut off the supply yeah i mean so that i that, that's the way we've got to look at it really like it's it's not uh, an attack on the japanese mm-hmm. people it's 
it's a worldwide thing but it, it just happens to be happening in japan if it was happening in uh canada or africa like you, you you'd be there like trying to document it and everything um but it's, it's, it's not because it's it's japan yeah yeah if that makes sense yeah absolutely and i think yeah that raising awareness is so important i mean i follow a conservationist um on instagram who the other day was posting um video footage of a killer whale um at, i don't think it was sea but it was it was a captive marine park um mm-hmm. and then you know a few other comments were people sort of very politely and very kindly saying Oh, don't know if you realised, but this, this, and this, and the person was absolutely horrified. So even though yeah. she works in the industry and and is privy to a lot of information that perhaps other people aren't, she still didn't even realise where these animals came from. Um, so yeah. yeah, it's important to keep pushing that message for sure. Um, yeah, definitely. But the project—it's not all doom and gloom, is it? I mean, there's been successes. Like I recently saw mm-hmm. um, that. They dolphin project was successful in closing in one of Indonesia's traveling dolphin circuses. Um, yeah, so that that was a huge, huge win. Like uh, that's an eleven-year campaign that's been um, going on to try and yeah end the the dolphin traveling circuses. Like that that was just horrible. Like mm-hmm. they basically um, yeah, it's just just like an, an ordinary circus, but they they travel from place to place all over Indonesia and set up these pretty much paddling pools for these dolphins to perform in and jump through flaming hoops. And, um, but then when they're in transit, they can be in transit for up to like, Oh, and even longer than like 24 hours. And they're just in these tiny little crates that are just the length of their bodies. Mm. Um, just, yeah, really, really horrific. But thankfully like it's, it is no more like it, it, it is, completely closed and and done for good so that's yeah amazing and we've also um recently opened a dolphin sanctuary in bali um where at at the moment there's four uh dolphins who have been retired from um the melka hotel Mm -hmm. um in bali and they're two of them um are potentially fit um, for, for re- rehabilitation and, and release, but with they're still being evaluated and and um, yeah, just just to see if if they could maybe survive in the wild again. But the other two, um, one of them is blind, and the other one doesn't have any teeth. Like it's quite a common mm-hmm. uh, practice for for dolphins and and killer whales to have their teeth like drilled down so that they don't. Um, bite any customers <laughs> or trainers or anything yeah. um and so they're they're unfortunately they're not fit for release but at least they're in then they're no longer in chlorinated water they're in a sea pen which is huge it's, it's absolutely massive they're in like they get to feel the the rhythms of the ocean and um mm. they no longer have to perform for human entertainment yeah. which is just amazing they get a happy ending yeah exactly so hopefully hopefully we can get more of those around the world and yeah and you can follow that i'll put i'll put in the show notes um for this episode but you can sort of follow the story um on their facebook page and also on their website can't you and, and donate if you want yes to yeah that'd be amazing yeah um and i just wanted to, I've got a couple more questions for you um, yeah, yeah. I just wanted to ask about um, sort of veganism and dietary changes and stuff and how that links into environmentalism. Um, 
obviously we're both a bit biased because (laughs) (laughs) um but i wanted to ask whether it started off as an animal welfare choice for you or an environmental choice or if it was a amalgamation of the two um yeah what choice do you see that lifestyle and what do you feel like the benefits are of it so my initial um decision for being vegan was animal rights and, and animal welfare um I was vegetarian pretty much since the age of six um but at the, at that age it was pretty much because I I didn't like it I, yeah. I didn't well, my parents would would yeah feed it to me and I was a really fussy eater and I just refused yeah. but also they they were pescatarian so they never ate meat themselves but then I I don't know if maybe I made the connection that they weren't eating it so so why should I yeah (laughs) and I just put my foot down I was like I'm not eating it and so I um yeah I was vegetarian for years and years still ate uh animal products like like cheese and and dairy and Mm -hmm. eggs but then when I went to this conference that I was telling you about um and I met all these like whale and dolphin advocates. I, they, they were like pretty much all of them were vegan. And I was just like, Oh yeah, but you know, like, I just don't think I could give up cheese. Like that classic (laughs) like comment. So many people say, and they were like, honestly, like we'll take you to this vegan restaurant tonight. Like it's, it's so much easier than you think. And I went to this restaurant with them and had the best meal of my life. It was a Mm -hmm. vegan lasagna and I couldn't believe that there was no real cheese in there and, and it was just delicious. And I was like, okay, do you know what? From this moment on, I'm going to be vegan and, and that's it. Mm-hmm. And then it was from then that I just read more about it and then found out about all the like damages of animal agriculture on the environment. And it just kind of reinforced for me that I'd made the right choice. Like I didn't want to, I didn't want my like dietary choices to be having a negative effect on on the environment so um yeah I I, like even though animal welfare was my like primary reason for for going vegan the environment is is like so close Mm -hmm. to that because like we are destroying the planet with well and and animal agriculture is like the the number one Mm -hmm reason for for global warming and all that so it's it's yeah it's definitely a, a big big reason for for staying vegan yes it's a nice and health as well health yeah. is yeah, health, my health has got like significantly better since being vegan so mm-hmm. and it's, it's so easy um, to do now isn't it in this day and age like Mm-hmm. the amount of stuff oh, yeah. yeah like I went to a vegan pub for my birthday the other weekend and I had chicken wings mm-hmm. well, chicken wings for the first time in my life and it was a revelation oh. it was steak <laughs> it was just incredible and yeah so easily available so why you know give it a go people if you if you always sort of you know fancy fancy doing it it does, it does make you feel a bit better about things in life that's sort of what made me first turn the I mean you and Georgie um working together Mm -hmm. at Mayhew Mm -hmm. like pushed me I was already vegetarian and it pushed me towards the the vegan um sort of way of things um yeah yeah just for me it just makes me feel a bit better about I'm able to do something (laughs) just a little yeah to help yeah no guilt yes and it makes it makes you that much more creative as well with your cooking like 
I uh, yeah expanded my knowledge of of the kitchen from yeah. <laughs> being vegan yeah definitely it becomes more of a hobby rather than like oh I have to eat so I have to make something you get excited yeah Ooh, what can I make today yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'll tell you one thing though I wish they did Linda McCartney's in the Philippines <laughs> 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 oh, it's it's quite difficult like there's there's not a huge amount of choice here so I'm literally living on vegetables and noodles but that's okay that's, okay. that's still delicious <laughs> yeah where do you plan on going after the Philippines have you got a plan or is it playing it by ear yeah we're, we're still uncertain but I think after we're done with our dive master then we're gonna do a little bit of backpacking around so we want to do the the kind of classic Vietnam uh, Cambodia Laos Thailand and hopefully make a trip to Indonesia and and maybe see the dolphin sanctuary which would be really cool but that's that's yeah very up in the air like we, we, we haven't booked anything yet but we're we're planning or we're thinking about planning our, our next step so we'll, we'll just see yeah watch this space yeah. <laughs> yes exactly and uh, and people can uh follow your travels can't they if they so desire on instagram you have your uh, yeah. our tail travel page yes tail felt like t-a-l-e like the yeah. fairy tale. <laughs> um <laughs> and i'll pop that link in the show notes as well if that's all right and then people can yeah of course can follow that there um yeah Two final questions for you, which are a bit silly questions that I like to ask everybody. Um, the first one being, um, if you could have any animal adaptation, um, what would you have and why? Oh, that's really, really difficult. <laughs> it would it would have to be to be able to breathe underwater. I'd have to be like a... a a fish or a shark <laughs> that could breathe underwater and just dive as deep as I possibly can and not have to worry about yeah going to the surface to take yeah. breath or, or having a, having a tank on me <laughs> I thought that might that might be your <laughs> <laughs> it's a bit obvious isn't yeah. it? <laughs> and the second one is who would play you in a movie of your life oh so uh, hmm. <laughs> like this is a really difficult question mm. because my initial instinct is to say oh margot robbie hands yeah. down yeah. she's she's a great actress love her. but i just i i want someone who's like who has the same i don't know if she's vegan or not i'm not i'm not sure what her kind of views on animals are yeah. and all that so this is so funny I... um, in one of my previous interviews um, with my friend emily um from university she chose margot robbie but she said it immediate choice because she's great and she's very attractive and when people think of her they'll think of margot robbie <laughs> yeah <laughs> <laughs> which is a great reason um but then yeah she, yeah, yeah. Thing, she was like yeah i want to pick someone who kind of aligns with my life mm -hmm. values and stuff like that yeah so i think in that case, I would have to say uh, Miley Cyrus. She's pretty outspoken on like veganism and, and animal rights and stuff. And she, well, I, I loved Hannah Montana as a kid. <laughs> so I think that works out pretty well. Yeah, okay, we'll, we'll go with Miley. Yeah, childhood dreams come to life. 
Yeah, exactly. And I can see there's a bit of a resemblance there, so yeah, that can, that can definitely work. Really? Well, yeah. that's a massive compliment. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> there you go. For everyone who listens to this, now they'll just think of Miley Cyrus when they think of you, so it works, you know. Perfect. <laughs> Great. Love it. <laughs> Oh, thank you so much for taking the time today uh, from thousands of miles away to have a chat with me it's been lovely to oh of course yeah anytime yeah and um yeah I wish you all the best with with everything that you've got coming up um and I'll certainly be following um your journeys um on Instagram so everyone else can as well I'll put that in the show notes and I'll put Rick in the show notes as well so people can have more of an explore of that um and keep up to date yes that they're doing That'd be amazing. Yeah. Thank you. Well, thank you so much. Thank you. Speak oh, soon. Bye. You too. <laughs> thank you so much for joining me on episode three of Turn on the Light podcast. I hope you enjoyed the story of the humpback whale and that lovely interview, that lovely chat with Molly Gray there. Um, as I said, I'll put all the links to her Instagram, um, to Rico Barry's dolphin project and to the paper that I spoke about in the humpback whale story. I'll put all of those things in the show notes um, so you can have a little look at those. Um, I am available on Google Podcasts now, um, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, um, wherever you get your podcasts basically um and of course on anchor um so if you wanted to spread this around share this around with people who you think might like to listen to some nice little stories um of conservation successes then please do um as i said before i now have an instagram and a twitter and a gmail account um so i will put those in the show notes for you as well okay um thank you all for listening and for coming back once again um and there will be another episode in a couple of weeks and so take care of yourselves have fun and um thank you love you lots bye and remember that hope can be found even in the darkest of times if only one remembers to turn on the light.